Hello, and welcome to the Bomb Squad podcast. Today, I have with me... Hi, I'm Austin Zwiebelman. Hi, I'm Tim M. Sullivan. I'm Joseph Varenik. And with us today, we have our very special guest... I'm Angie Hatchiman, returning... Three-timers club! Three-timers! Returning champion for their second Ghibli cast, and the (laughs) second Ghibli cast overall. So they're two for two. Today, we will be discussing Hayao Miyazaki's 1997 masterpiece of animation, Princess Mononoke. Very jazzed about this one. Um, Princess Mononoke is a hugely significant sort of film in the history of Japanese animation. It is not not the first Studio Ghibli film to make it over to the U.S. You know, we've got Nausicaa in its tr- uh, heavily truncated form of Warriors of the Wind with good old Princess Zarna and, you know, about a half hour cut from it. And, uh, of course, Streamline Pictures brought over Laputa and uh, Troma distributed My Neighbor Totoro, which Hell is a, yeah. a match made in heaven. Yeah, the Toxic Crusader guys. But uh, Princess Mononoke was the first one to be distributed by um, Disney, or well, Miramax, and the first one with a proper celebrity voice cast and everything. On top of that, it's just like, for as much as its importance in like exposing Western audiences to Ghibli works is, it's also just a masterpiece in and of itself, clocking in with the highest number of animation drawings in any Japanese animated feature ever made, taking the record from Almighty Akira, which itself only, you know, 20 years later surpassed the classic Horus, Prince of the Sun from 1968. It's a really rich sort of Jidaigeki work from Miyazaki his first really historical piece following in the tradition of the likes of uh, Kurosawa, who was a director he had a lot of respect for. And I'm really thrilled to talk about it, but I won't bog us down with history. I have a lot of things I'm going to say about it, like in historical context, but that'll come later because I want to give you guys more opportunity to gush about this movie because it's really good. Oh, So leading into our very first question, which is already a two-parter, what is your history with Studio Ghibli and Princess Mononoke in particular? Uh, Tim, Angie, and myself already addressed the first part of this question in our episode on Castle in the Sky, uh, which you should very much watch. It's really good. So we'll allow those who haven't been on a Ghibli cast to take the lead here, uh, starting with Joe. As far as uh, my history with Studio Ghibli, as far as what anime I have seen or just like any like Japanese animated films in general, that's pretty much where most of my knowledge of it lies is with Studio Ghibli, though I've not seen a whole ton from it. I've seen Spirited Away because when I was like a teenager, that was like so high up on IMDb's top 250, like, best films ever made. What? A human? Let's go! That one I really enjoy. I've seen My Neighbor Totoro, Howl's Moving Castle. I I get laughed at for saying that I have a soft spot for it, but when I was a kid, I saw Porco Rosso, and I really enjoyed it. Porco Rosso absolutely rocks. (laughs) I I wonder if people just haven't... I feel like it's less seen than basically all of Miyazaki's other films, so maybe that's why. They're just not in the know. They're not as cultured as you are. (laughs) Fair. Someday I'm gonna get off my lazy butt. Watch Porco Rosso. I mean, I guess the only other thing outside of this one we're talking about today is Ponyo, but that was also like super popular around the time it came out. So it was just like, I should probably get in the know of this. As far as my history with Princess Mononoke, it's been in my watch list for a long time. So yeah, no, this was a first time experience for me. Hell yeah, that rules. I'm glad you were able to check it out for these purposes. Um, It's a real, obviously just very much a gem of a film, but um. No, Austin, your your history with Studio Ghibli and your history with the movie Princess Mononoke. My first interactions with a Ghibli movie was my sister watching Kiki's Delivery Service on Disney Channel, and I had no idea that was a Ghibli film at the time. I really love it here, but people don't seem to like witches in this town. 
depends on the people. Then a few years later, it's Saturday, March 18th, 2006. I've been seeing these ads saying, Toonami is proud to present four of the greatest animated movies ever made. It's the month of Miyazaki on Toonami. And I see Spirited Away that evening. The Saturday after that, they air Princess Mononoke. I see the little parental advisory beforehand and I just get hype. I'd go on to watch most Ghibli films after that on dates. That was just kind of what I did with them. Uh, the first one I ever got to see in theaters was Ponyo when I was like 14. And you can imagine how ripped off I felt as a 14-year-old boy who thought that Princess Mononoke set the standard tone of a Ghibli film when I saw Ponyo and Totoro for the first time. Ponyo wants ham! All she thinks about is ham, Mom. And I, I still hold a little bit of a grudge against Ponyo for being more of a conventional children's film. And that's it. That's my Ghibli history. That's completely fair. I think um, the month of Miyazaki is a, a pretty common starting point in particular, because, uh, I mean, yeah, that's where I first saw their works, um, particularly for people of our, our generation. But yeah, all right. Uh, history with Princess Mononoke. Tim. So kind of like what you were saying, uh, we, me, Angie, and Ethan already kind of talked about our history with uh, Ghibli and Miyazaki at large on the Castle in the Sky podcast, which you should check out because it was the first podcast I edited. And also the only podcast I've edited where I didn't feel like I wanted to die at the end. I feel my last potato! <laughs> work, work, work. Busy, 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 busy. Left, right, left, right. You're not here to have fun. I don't know what happened that week, but it worked. But yeah, my history with this film kind of on the same lines as basically the other ones is like I was checking out a lot of the Ghibli stuff around the same time and I was like renting a lot of them through the Netflix DVD service and this was one of those ones that is rented on DVD. I think this is like one of the few where I actually watched it dubbed instead of subbed. I would say that like out of those movies I was watching even early on this is one of the ones that stood out to me the most. This one, and I guess I would say Spirited Away, it's definitely the most violent. Like, it's probably the darkest Ghibli movie besides Grave of the Fireflies. But Grave of the Fireflies is not a fun movie. It's top 10 bummer movies of all time. What is this stuff? Never mind that. Just dump it. But this one is it's very much like a, a big like get hype kind of movie uh there's a lot to love about it i don't get more into that uh when we're talking about our thoughts on the movie back to you ethan i think watching it dubbed is perfectly acceptable there's some odd casting choices but overall i would say it's a strong perform uh, like a lot of strong performances yeah. they do the thing where they kind of fill the space a little bit um which is interesting but i feel like the ad libs and the additional stuff that's inserted it's not too uh, distracting and it's mostly just kind of fun flavor, yeah. which is, is kind of what a, a good dub is. Like, it's more of a, a fun alternative to that um, original Japanese language track. Like, if it's not the only thing that's available, then it's cool and good. But Angie, your history with Princess Mononoke. As I mentioned, the castle, the sky cast, I, I was going through Ghibli movies in high school when I was first getting into anime. So as like a young person trying to get into anime, I didn't know how to find new animes to watch. And the internet at the time was in a more primitive state. Oh boy, whatever gave you the idea to buy a computer anyway? Because they said it was easy. So um, my way of getting to find new animes was just going around and asking my friends like what stuff they have seen. So my best friend, uh, I asked her and she was like, okay, when I was younger, I saw this movie on TV and it gave me nightmares. And she described the entire climax of Princess Mononoke and how she it 
terrified her. And uh, when I eventually like watched the movie, I noticed there was similarities to this like dream she had. And I told her, I was like, hey, I watched this movie. It sounds a lot like what you were describing to me. And she's like, that was it. That was the movie I saw. And to this day, it's still her favorite Ghibli film. I'm sorry. This is my nightmare. Out of all the Ghibli movies is one of my favorites. So I watched it a couple more times, but the last time I watched it was about seven years ago. So it's been a while since I, I had a chance to revisit it. So I was really excited to watch it again. Like this is the kind of film that definitely would, like of all the Miyazaki films, uh, the, the one that would give you nightmares. This like, I don't know, like no face eating everybody in Spirited Away are like the two two standout kind of uh, freaky moments in, in his uh, filmography. <laughs> But yeah, my, my own history with uh, Princess Mononoke is um, much like Austin. I, I saw it via the month of Miyazaki on Toonami in that original form. I think it was the one that stuck with me the least out of all, all of them for some reason. I think it was just a you know a case of the, the setting in which I originally watched it because I think I was at my grandmother's house and we were having dinner or something, so I couldn't give it my whole attention. There was a brief period in time where I was like, ooh, Ghibli movies, they're overrated. I think like very brief when I was like in my middle teens. And that passed quickly after I revisited them, uh, Princess Mononoke being one of them. And I'm like, oh, wait, no, I was just wrong. Edge Lord Ethan. <laughs> a, a smidge, a little bit. That same Ethan who was like, no, Edeon Be Invoked is so much better than than Avengel- End of Evangelion. Uh, that's, they're, they're completely different films. Ethan, shut up, stop. Aside from me being dumb and wrong and bad, the long and short, I, like I've seen it in theaters a few times since. And that, that is sort of the, the ideal environment to see it, even in Fathom Events, Ovision. Um, <laughs> it's kind of, it's 10, 1080p-i. <laughs> Um, I love the thing. Wah, wah. Single tear. But no, uh, like, it is such a big film. And even even among, like, Miyazaki's film, like, it still has that level of nuance. But it, it feels maybe more like any of his other films, an event film. Like, this is a big damn deal. But but it still manages those quiet moments, that intimacy, which is, is really effective, I think. Like, the, the stuff that sticks with me about Princess Mononoke, maybe it isn't even those big scenes. It's those, those little moments. And I think that sort of characterized my love of his other films. But that's sort of dipping into our next question regarding overall thoughts on the film. Joe, would you like to start us off? <laughs> oh, no. Um, so, I think I liked it? Question mark? I think I need to re-watch it again. There's definitely stuff in it that I like. It's a Miyazaki movie, so, like, of course the animation's great. I'm just a newbie at anime stuff. I watched the dub version with the celebrity-voiced cast because that's just what was available on HBO Max. Look, everyone! This is what hatred looks like. This is what it does when it catches hold of you. I thought I thought it was pretty well acted for the most part. Between this movie and The Thing, uh, we've been talking about a lot of Keith David movies on this podcast lately. He, he's always been a solid voice actor, so he's pretty good in that. M- my girl Scully's a wolf. I, I, I was surprised <laughs> to find that out. Good old Dana Scully. You know... That boy wanted to share his life with you. I feel like that this is just another step of me just testing the waters of anime. And right now I'm just like, yeah, no, I think I like this. That's fair. It has negatively impacted my perception of you as a person. Uh, I think less of you. Uh, no, um, that, that, that's completely fair. I think there's a lot to sort of soak into. There's a lot going on between um, it, 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 it 
it's a very straightforward approach to its like more supernatural elements and its uh, larger hi- historical context being set in the the Jomon period, um, which is I don't know the Japanese equivalent of like the Dark Ages ostensibly um, when mm-hmm. there was no really like particularly powerful feudal lords. So it's you know it's an alien culture, and then there there are so many layers of things where like if you're not super uh, familiar with the culture as a whole, like it could like there's a bit to get through on that front on top of the wit, its approach to its more supernatural elements. But yeah, no, uh, Austin, your thoughts on Princess Mononoke? One thing I really love about this film is how it goes against eco-fascist stereotypes. The film makes this really unique assertion that it's perfectly reasonable for humans to make a space for themselves that is separate from nature so that all of us have a shot at survival. The film uses, like, lepers and women who wouldn't be able to be, like, conventional hunter-gatherer types to justify the existence of operations like Irontown. And it also includes a faction that represents nature's cruelty towards humans with the Boar Tribe, a group of animals who, just like the humans, can be blinded by hate and choose bloodshed over sort of striving for coexistence. And that's what makes this film so exceptional, is that the moral of the story doesn't seem to be like, rip off our clothes and return to living in the forest. It's about doing things in life out of love instead of out of fear. And I mean, that whole deeply sad climax happens partially because the unseen emperor who's driving the actions of Jikabo is afraid of returning his body to nature someday. Uh, Ashitaka's whole storyline enforces the love versus fear idea. He sees San, the titular character per the English translation, and she's also devoted her life to a mission of destruction. And Ashitaka spends the whole film trying to convince her to become a human who represents the forest like he is, instead of trying to be this monstrous arbiter of its vengeance, uh, because she doesn't need to be the forest's personal assassin. The forest can assassinate everybody all by itself, thank you. The finale really nails home the grand truth that we only live here because nature allows us to live here. The moment where uh, Lady Eboshi gets her gun flower-powered by the forest spirit, only for her to still blow its head off, is a powerful demonstration of something very true. Nature can't stop us from going too far, but it can absolutely get revenge after the fact. I love this film, and I'd say it's important for everybody to watch it uh, when they're ready to handle its stark depictions of violence. This is the kind of art that I hope shapes people's ideas as we carry on into the future. In a 1997 documentary, Princess Mononoke in the USA, Miyazaki says, We had to make this movie or we forfeit the right to make any more. We're all very lucky something this beautiful exists for us to watch. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree in that assessment. I think it, it has such a nuanced take on uh, particularly our relationship with nature, particularly the the balance between humanity, spiritualism, like the, the spiritual world and the, the natural world. It is incredibly distinct and mature, even beyond its very frank depictions of violence. But even, even so, like those depictions of violence, they're never presented in a way that makes them feel jarring or particularly like, like you're caught off guard by them sometimes, like a man just got his arms knocked off or his head knocked off, but it's so frank and it doesn't revel. It doesn't really sit you in front of it and show the blood and guts and gore. It's a very direct sort of way of depicting this, this violence that all leans towards the the larger message of how life can be hard um, and it can be taken away from you in an instant. Uh, so you should live. Like, you know, the, the final message of the film is live, ostensibly. You cannot alter your fate, my prince. However, you can rise to meet it if you choose. Easy to say, such a complicated thing to do, not just for oneself, but in how they exist in a larger environment. Yeah, no, moving on. 
Tim, your thoughts on the film? So, yeah, I watched it uh, two times uh, last night. I watched it subbed for the first time, and uh, this morning I watched it dubbed for the first time. Another excuse to crack open uh, the collected works of Hayao Miyazaki Blu-ray set. It was very strange to put on this movie and have the little Disney castle come up before it. This is probably the most violent movie that <laughs> has ever been released by Disney proper, which is it was just very odd and whiplashy but very funny to me i would say this is for me miyazaki's best uh might be ghibli's best honestly top tier anime film for me everything austin said rings true it's it's a, it's a very great depiction of that ecological message and like re revisiting it this time, I kept kind of coming back to Castle in the Sky because he definitely had like a lot of thematic and uh, visual stuff that was carrying through a lot of his movies during that period, like Nausicaa, Castle in the Sky, and then this movie, of course. There's, there's a lot of similarities going on between those movies. I think that this one like really tackled those concepts the best. It, it just had, it had a lot of like really interesting characters like uh, Miyazaki always is great at building characters that keep the movie going and keep you invested and interested. I think that the climax is just like a great way of showing how, how if you keep using up our resources we're gonna fucking die. I think I have more specific thoughts for the next couple questions so I'm gonna pass it back to you Ethan. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I totally agree, particularly with regards to, like, Miyazaki's execution of his thematic ideas here, because there is a lot, like, it's sort of the blend of young Miyazaki and old man Miyazaki in that it's very concerned with ecology and, and our treatment of the environment, but also, on some level, socialism, um, particularly it, particularly as depicted in Iron Town, there is, a, there is very much a sense that he's putting a lot of his own character into uh, Lady Eboshi as sort of a, a taskmaster who demands a lot of her, uh, her people, but also uh, treats them fairly and tries to function within a communal sort of system society sort of imposing a lot of the old Toei union gang onto this community on some level, which I, I kind of love. Uh, it's delightful to see him sort of being a bit more direct with that because he's sort of sort of walked back those statements uh, or that like his, you know, his more youthful ideas as he's grown more uh, pessimistic and curmudgeonly. But uh, Angie, thoughts on the film? So uh, like I mentioned earlier, it's been about like seven years since I seen it. So as excited as I was, I was also a little bit nervous. You know how it is when you like go back and visit something you liked when you were um, younger. You're always like, okay, how am I going to feel about it now? I, I definitely have so much more um, experience with anime, with movies. I've matured as a person and I have sort of, I guess, a more mature like opinion um perception of like movies so I was like okay what if what if I don't like it as as much as um I did before why are you here if you don't mind my asking I have come a very long way I can't tell you more than that but it was the exact opposite I ended up falling in love again with the movie like I think I appreciate it and love it so much more now than I ever did when I was younger and I'm so glad I went to go and see it in the the, the theaters for the 25th anniversary um screening I enjoyed it so much that I, I refused to like watch it again like before the podcast because I was like I, I just don't want to taint that experience I had of going to see it in the theaters I even like went out and bought like the steelbook like immediately afterwards because I liked it so much. But basically my thoughts 
what I noticed is, uh, I think I mentioned something about this in the Castle of the Sky cast, where I said, like, Miyazaki's movies kind of have a flow to it. And um, I noticed that with this movie, too, where the progression of events is just incredibly smooth. Like, it, it moves consistently. It had really good pacing, like, but a good balance between, like, the fast moments and, like, the quiet moments. So you're really engaged with, like, the story, with how it moves through the different events and how it's paced. So I, I never got bored. Like, I, I was never like, gosh, when it, like, oh, when is this going to be over? Because it's a pretty long uh, movie for a, a Ghibli film, I think. So I was just really excited. Every, every moment of the movie had me, like, invested in what was going on. And it also has, like, really great, like, a deep message. Moro, the wolf mother, I think every like scene, uh, every bit of her dialogue was really profound and really got me uh, like in the feels, especially the moment where she's talking with the blind boar. Like th that really got, that one, that scene really got to me. You'd risk everything on one last battle. That's just what the humans want. Even if every one of us dies, it will be a battle the humans will never forget. I also want to say that Ashitaka is kind of a badass. I know out of all the Ghibli men, like Howl's probably like the most popular, but Ashitaka fangirls need to rise up because that dude is a fucking badass. Like um, one of my favorite all time scenes uh, is the scene where he picks up San and he's carrying her over his shoulders. He gets shot through the chest and then he lifts a gate that's meant for like 10 people while he's like bleeding out and everyone's just watching silently. That's my Gatorade get hype moment. Like that part gets to me every single time uh, and I love it. And I just think Ashitaka is like a really, really cool character. Yes. Yes. No, Ashitaka rules. Like, um, like Howl has that very much. I can fix him kind of quality <laughs> to him. But like Ash Ashitaka is like, there's no fixing required. He would just do everything for me. He would take care of me. Right. Uh, okay. It's fine. You know, if people want to like Howl, fine. You know, have fun with your whiny bitch boy who's going to cry over his hair. <laughs> uh, I'm going to get yeah. Ashitaka who's going to like decapitate people. Yeah. I, I can relate to, to crying <laughs> about your hair. Um, <laughs> no. My, my own thoughts on Princess Mononoke. Uh, I, I like it. I think it's a gorgeous film. Um, I think it's very effective. And mostly what I would be normally doing here is just sort of reiterating what these guys have said. But I, I commenting on more of what occurred to me during this last viewing is how much it has a relationship with um, not a Miyazaki work, but uh, Isao Takahata's first film, uh, Horus, Prince of the Sun, or Holge Taiboken, uh, Tayono Taiboken. Yeah, his 1968 feature that he made for Toei. Uh, it, it's really interesting. Like it it really stood out to me when I opened up a copy of uh, the art of Princess Mononoke and like one of the first images is a uh, concept sketch of San and she looks very, very much like uh, Hilda from uh, Horus. Like some of it's just aesthetic stuff. The the use of the white wolves in Horus, the, the antagonist Grunwald has white wolves, which he sends after uh, Horus in the opening of the film. The, uh, the openings of the films are similar in that it's sort of a opening on the, the protagonist locked in combat. The juxtaposition between the sort of, you know, very rural community, both of their emphases on uh, sort of uh, marginalized cultures, because Ashitaka is not, um, I guess, conventionally Japanese. He's from the Amishi tribe, which were a people that were conquered by the uh, Yamato people, um, who are just sort of the descendants of modern day Japanese. In the same way, Horus was, um, despite its sort of 
being pigeonholed into this weird sort of Norse uh, theming. Uh, the actual aesthetics um, are borrowed from uh, the Ainu people of Hokkaido, which were similarly culturally subjugated by the uh, Yamato people, um, to the point where, like, up until the 90s, uh, it was illegal to engage in the majority of their cultural practices, and they still have not received reparations. And here's Isao Takahata doing something like this in 1968 while also being in a, in a union. Uh, that's why that movie got uh, very limited release and intentionally sabotaged by Toei. Oh, boy. But, like, it's more the way it's building, because, like, what, um, what I was saying with the socialist aspect of Mononoke, that is very much there in Horus. Um, you know, it's a small community. The community in Princess Mononoke is basically just a straight, straightforward, like, heroic entity in Horus, whereas in, obviously, Mononoke, it's Miyazaki depicting something with a lot more nuance and building on this I, this sort of baseline idea. It really feels like a successor to Horus uh, in so many ways that I love. Yeah, like the juxtaposition between sort of a wild child who's constantly angry, much like Horus, um, and the oily sort of antagonist in Eboshi and the way she kind of mirrors Hilda, the sort of pick and mix of elements from different characters. That was that was what really stood out to me on this rewatch. Um, also, the fact that Lady Eboshi kind of uh, sort of looks like Baijiang from Hakujiden, the 1958 film, the woman uh, where Miyazaki went to see the film on a cold winter night um, and he fell in love with her and he went home and he weeped because he thought she was so beautiful. And that was part of the reason he became an animator. There is a, certainly a resemblance between their characters, if not in their characterization, uh, particularly hairdo-wise, um, which I, I love. And I, I like to imagine is intentional. <laughs> but beyond that, its own thematic core is so strong and so resonant. We've talked about a lot about themes and ideas, but let's uh, kind of hone in on the film's visuals in particular, because golly gosh gee, this is a pretty movie. Again, it was it has the most animation frames of any animated film made up to that point, not even beating out Akira. Yeah, so um, we're going to talk about the film's visuals in general, the cool compositing stuff that's going on here, and any particular scenes even that just stand out to you. And again, we'll just go in order. Joe, you want to start uh, us off here? For me, like, the one thing that, like, really stood out to me was like, the first, like, instance of, like, human violence was, like, something that kind of stood out to me. I had heard all throughout high school that people watched this movie when they were kids. And when it gets to the scene where uh, our lead character gets to the one village and he just oversees like this massacre going on. And in the background, you just see this guy just hand, not even just hand, just like whole arm, just friggin' removed. I was just like, damn, what what was wrong with their childhood? That's uh, <laughs> that that's some pretty intense stuff for what I thought was a kid's movie. On the Vampire Hunter D podcast, we kind of talked about how that played on Cartoon Network in a heavily edited format in 1995. <laughs> this was played uncut on Toonami because uh, their contracts forbid people from altering the content of the movie. No, nope. uh, Warriors <laughs> of the Wind, yada, yada, yada. And, and I just, I keep thinking to myself, is it crazier that this movie aired on Cartoon Network uncut or that Vampire Hunter D aired on Cartoon Network at all? I think, I think it might be this one. This is a pretty violent movie to just be like showing the little kids on Cartoon Network. That's some pretty ballsy content for uh, a kid. And I, I applaud it, but how do you sleep at night? They what don't. My friend had nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is true. You did mention that. It's violence is very visually arresting. Like, even if it is treated very casually, um, it's it still stands out uh, pretty prominently. Uh, that, that casualness is almost what makes it stand out. Um, like, it's just a, head, a guy's head gets knocked off and cuts away. It's like, um, just after the second head, you're just like, man, this yeah. is, what the hell? They're going for it. Yeah. 
<laughs> exactly. Speaking of heads, we've had a lot of movies with like animated like heads coming to life and attacking people. Uh, there's Moro in this film, the head in Cobra, the thing. Uh, just a lot. Just a lot of head. A lot of. We've been getting a lot of head lately. Um, just sex, wait till we do a house later. <laughs> sex joke, Ethan, over here. Oh my god. A rare treat. A rare treat. But no, Austin, your thoughts on the film's visuals? This is the No Cuts movie where uh, Miyazaki yeah. sent the sword to Harvey Weinstein. And I, I like to refer to this moment as uh, Ermintraut's Folly, in which uh, he made a half measure where he should have made a full. I chose a half measure when I should have gone all the way. He fucking sent a guy a sword to tell him not to cut it. Standouts from this for me, the demon possession in the beginning, those worms, and the forest spirit's Nightwalker form. I mean, what a way to begin the film. I don't know why, but I associate Ghibli with, like, extremely polished but more traditional methods of animating rather than groundbreaking crazy special effects. But you can't deny the opening boar fight is an extremely impressive sequence. Sort of grouped in with the Nightwalker at one point or the Kodama. Uh, it's always fun watching a Ghibli film because there's usually some kind of creature that fills you with infectious joy. Like the soot sprites in Spirited Away or Totoro or various cats in other films. And among that group, there's the Kodama, baby. Uh, Miyazaki had to know that these little guys were going to win hearts because he ended the whole film on a Kodama. Uh, but of course, the part where the forest spirit heals Ashitaka and all the Kodama are just screaming their little heads off. Absolutely breathtaking stuff. Back to you, Ethan. Yeah, for sure. Again, like there, there's a lot of great traditional animation, but the, the digital stuff, like it, it stands out, but in a way that's like not super distracting. It's not like early CGI kind of material. Like, I don't know, like the CGI in Mortal Kombat or something. Or, or go um, Oh, Gogo Go Go 13. Yeah, the, the CGI in Gogo Go 13, the professional, uh, is, is, ooh boy, rough. Um, but yeah, I think that's, uh, those are all like sort of the, probably some of the most prominent visual standouts. Uh, I do love the Kodama. I think it's really interesting. If you look at uh, Miyazaki's uh, concept illustrations, uh, they look a lot more freaky. Like they kind of have teeth and, and weirder mouths and, and their proportions are all kind of funky. Uh, but I love them. Like they're, they're delightful freaks. Um, <laughs> Tim, thoughts on the film's visuals? Um, yeah, I mean, like they've been saying, like, I think that this is probably what I would say is the most visually stunning Ghibli movie. And that's saying something, I think just because it's like right at that perfect time where they got that perfect balance of traditional with CGI to where it doesn't like the CGI looks good. It looks well blended in. Um, and like the cell animation is just so like right at the end of that cell animation era. So it just looks so good. I actually read a trivia that this apparently was the last major motion picture that was animated on plastic cells, uh, which was interesting. But one sequence that jumped out to me in particular on this viewing was when Okoko is being taken over by the demon and like the little demon worm vine things are taking uh, San into them and Ashitaka goes in to save her. And like the big like visual comparison that you can obviously make is uh, Tetsuo taking Akira, Kaneda yes. into an Akira. Uh, that, like that that's that's a pretty like glaring one but another like visual comparison that jumped out to me is again this is going back to castle in the sky uh kind of reminded me of that shot where right before they're going into lapida and there's like going through the storms and like you see these like gray clouds blowing through the main character's face as he's going like towards lapida 
for some reason, like something about that the animation in that sequence like really gave me those vibes. But yeah, just uh, always a gorgeous movie to look at. Glad to view it again. Back to you, Ethan. Hell yeah, it is very pretty. Yeah, the multi multiple layers of stuff going on here is particularly impressive, even when they're not doing like digital compositing stuff. It's really cool. Oh. Angie, thoughts on the film's visuals? Despite watching almost nothing but anime for the last eight years, I, I'm not an animation expert. With that said, the movie looks gorgeous. I mean, I think that's obvious. I, I think I agree with Joe about how uh, the movie is kind of a lot more violent than I remember. I watched it when I was younger, but then revisiting, and I was like, this, this is a little bit bloody, isn't it? But uh, I think it is for something interesting visually, as a wolf enthusiast, I think the uh, wolves move really realistically, especially with how like they jumped and run and, and everything. I thought they took care to make them move like naturally, like a real, like a wolf would. So um, that's that's some, my, my observation. Yeah, no, the animal animation is really impressive in this. Uh, like everything from the, the movements of the boars, the, the wolves are sort of the obvious standout. Uh, Yakul, Ashitaka's mount, looks fantastic. Just all the little mannerisms and like not even just like the general stride, but just like the, the little ticks. Uh, that's sort of like what you really love and what you're looking for in a Ghibli film is though that's what really gives animation life is not just the big moments, but those, those little things. Uh, my own thoughts on the film's visuals is uh, it's great. <laughs> it looks gorgeous. Uh, it's the, the last major contribution by... Uh, the late, great Yoshifumi Kondo, director of Whisper of the Heart, who tragically passed away shortly after his, his directorial debut. Um, and he, he really would have been that successor to Miyazaki's legacy. All evidence points to it. But I've always loved the way he's able to take Miyazaki's designs um, and he makes the eyes just a little bit bigger. They're just a little bit more expressive uh, than those designs you'd see in like Castle in the Sky or Future Boy Conan. And, e and even like in Spirited Away, comparatively, they're a little bit more conservative. In some elements or like Ponyo, the eyes aren't quite so distinct as, as when Kondo was was handling the design work. I think there a lot of the big moments are crazy impressive in this film. Um, Asan's attack on the town. I love the way she moves. Uh, it's it like the mixture of the sort of feral movements um, and the juxtaposition between the way Lady Eboshi moves, which is she doesn't move a lot, but it's always very measured. And the the shot of San charging at her, that sort of multi multi plane composited shot, is really impressive. Just all the the layers of movement there, and I like like perspective shots and that sort of thing in animation. They're crazy impressive. Just one small moment that I really that always sticks out in my brain for some reason is San chewing the like jerky, the the meat for um, Ashitaka. Just the way her mouth moves and the way she like rips the meat from like because she can't just like immediately bite it off. She has to tear at it, and then there's some resistance there. I just love that little piece of animation. It's so impressive to me, uh, and it adds so much character, and so in a way, sort of characterizes like San's limitations compared to the wolves. Oh, the, the moment where the wolf Ashitaka's passed out, and the wolf goes over and grabs his head and just kind of shakes him. I love that scene; it's so funny. <laughs> But no, like, yeah, there's just a, a whole lot of really great little moments in this film and uh, on top of the big stuff. And it's just such a massively impressive visual feast. But that is our time for the day. And we'll move on to our final thoughts on the film. Joe. I, I'm really glad that I watched this. I hope to get like another opportunity to rewatch it at some point. And uh, hopefully I'll grow to like it more. And honestly, that just kind of goes with just like figuring out what I like in just anime in general. So hopefully, because I plan to be on more anime podcasts because I, I feel I should expand my horizons a bit. Hopefully when we do Perfect Blue, I'll have more to say, but I liked it. I, I feel bad that I didn't have much to say about this. So movie good. Back, back to you. Hell yeah, movie good. Austin, thoughts on the film? 
It is hands down Miyazaki's best film, and it will only grow more important for people to watch this every day we continue down the path we're on as a species. Hell yeah. Very much agreed. Tim, thoughts on the film? Yeah, like we've been saying, it's probably Miyazaki's best film. I always love watching it whenever I get a chance. Uh, I, I did get to see it in the theater a couple years ago, and I remember really enjoying getting to see it on that big screen, kind of like what Angie was talking about. Whenever the next Miyazaki fest, whatever, Ghibli fest, whenever they roll that out again next year, do yourself a favor and check it out in the big screen if you haven't seen it. Very much so. Yeah, this is one that really benefits from being seen on a big screen. And uh, Angie, final thoughts? My assessment after watching it, um, between seven years of having watching it, um, it's not overrated. It's appropriately acclaimed because it's an actually legitimately good movie. So if you haven't seen it in a while, watch it again because it's really good. And if you haven't seen it, you at least got to watch it once. No, yeah, I, again, uh, wholeheartedly endorse that <laughs> assessment. Yeah, but much the same. I think it's a really magnificent work. It's building on a, a long tradition. It's it very much a sort of a cathartic film for Miyazaki, coming off a stretch of relatively mature kind of bummers, uh, the Nausicaa manga in particular, which it borrows a lot from, and, e- and even Porco Rosso to an extent, which is a more mature sort of film. Even if it's a lot of fun, it has its sad moments. But um, it's clearly cathartic, and it's clearly he, he got a lot out of the system, you know, following this up with the relative relatively lighthearted, spirited away. And I'm glad he got to make it. I'm happy that he was able to make his period piece masterwork. And I was really happy to talk about it with you guys. And now uh, this is where Tanner would usually do a a listeners like you bit. Uh, So listeners like you, listeners like you, imagine I'm pointing at the camera. For everyone watching on YouTube, be sure to like, subscribe, leave a comment. Uh, That might help us in the algorithm. Maybe it doesn't. But uh, and let us know your thoughts. Um, We want to know what you think of the film. What's your favorite Studio Ghibli movie? Um, Do you have a particular character, a particular sequence you're in love with? Do you think Miyazaki's a hack or not? Mm, That would be controversial. Spicy. Everyone wants to hear that. If you'd like an uncensored version of this podcast, of course, check out the version on Spotify video, uh, which we unfortunately do not get any money from. Uh, John Spotify himself himself said that he refuses to give Tanner money because he hates him. So be sure to uh, check out our Patreon where um, you can get uh, we'll credit you at the end of these these videos in particular uh, with your name. Uh, and we have some other other goodies uh, that we're going to be working on uh, for the Patreon, some sort of exclusive content in particular that we're considering. And thank you so much for listening. Uh, be sure to tune in next week as the Bomb Squad tackles the follow-up to the much-beloved classic Thor End of Days with <laughs> Thor Love and Thunder. I, I, I can't wait to revisit my boy Max Arya, King of Hammers. <laughs> Uh, and thank you so much uh, to Angie for joining us. Uh, we're always happy to have you on the show um, and we'll very much look forward to having you on again. Uh, it's always such a delight. I always love being here. Thanks so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. And to quote um, the immortal Hayao Miyazaki, his most infamous line, uh, I didn't want to destroy the bathhouse. <laughs> Fair <laughs> To see with eyes unclouded by hate. <laughs>